All right, y'all, welcome to the Scott Horton Show. I'm the director of the Libertarian Institute, editorial director of Antiwar.com, author of the book Fool's Errand, Time to End the War in Afghanistan, and the brand new Enough Already, Time to End the War on Terrorism. And I've recorded more than 5,500 interviews since 2003, almost all on foreign policy and all available for you at scotthorton.org. You can sign up for the podcast feed there. And the full interview archive is also available at youtube.com slash Scott Horton Show. All right, you guys, on the line, I've got Michael Tracy again. He's at mtracy.substack.com. And, of course, mtracy on Twitter. Welcome back to the show. How you doing, man? Doing well. Good. Uh, happy to have you back on the show. Listen, um... I don't think I've read anything by you on this subject yet, but I know you went to Munich to the big security yes. conference, <laughs> and I know I read some really bad things about it. So I'm interested in what you witnessed and what notes you took and what articles you might be working on uh, to let us know, because, uh, well, some of the things that I've read coming back from there uh, certainly are interesting and some of them um, quite concerning. So uh, what are your highlights, man? What happened? Yeah, you know, I needed to take a little bit of time to sort of synthesize some information in the aftermath of that conference because, hmm, how to put it? Well, it was similar to my experience of attending the NATO summit, uh, which I think we might have talked about a bit last year, in that there's really nobody that I could see anyway, who seems to be at these gatherings, who sort of has even the remotest inclination to question or even be mildly skeptical or critical of like the underlying premises of the organization, right? Or the overriding sort of goals of the organization or the sort of ideological sort of nature of the organization itself. That sounds a little vague, but I guess what I'm trying to say is there's this overwhelming kind of just subsumation into a collective mentality that prevails at these gatherings that um, very few people who ever attend, at least that I've seen anyway, uh, kind of stand apart from or try to detach themselves from or like even maintain a little bit of critical distance from. Um, and so I did want to try in the af after uh, attending this thing, I did want to try to like kind of check my biases and, and instincts and see if I was understanding things clearly. Um, and I think I am uh, for the most part. So here's one of the main takeaways. I think it really needs to be emphasized and it's not anywhere near sufficiently appreciated just how ideologically radicalized the so-called Western security establishment has gotten over the past year, mm -hmm. obviously catalyzed by Ukraine. But after that catalyzing effect really kicked into full gear, it's had wider ranging ramifications, right? Um, and obviously this isn't a huge mystery or this is not like a secret. You've seen, even when the war first started a year ago, right? That Germany, for instance, moved very quickly toward essentially abolishing its almost foundational foreign policy uh, philosophy uh, that it had maintained since World War II mm -hmm. in in endorsing, you know, the provision of lethal weaponry into war zones and, and so forth. And obviously that culminated in January with this whole uh, tank deal that the U.S. engineered. Um, so uh, much of this is in the public record, but I also think it's less appreciated how mutually reinforcing this kind of like ideological radicaliz radicalization is once you're in one of these professional milieus, because there's really no, or very little anyway, observable sort of genuinely countervailing opinion allowed or, or skeptical sort of um, 
skeptical counterweights uh, introduced into that context. Right. Um, that you'll have like dis- if you have dissension, it'll be over a uh, over like how quickly should quote aid be given to Ukraine or like what is the next weapon system that ought to be prioritized? Right. I mean, it won't be uh, anything that actually challenges or even questions uh, conceptually some of like the undergirding premises. Right. Um, is it meaningful, so, Michael, that they do this at Munich every year so that everyone has to be a horrible hawk? No one can possibly appease anyone at Munich, you know? Yeah, so obviously the specter of Munich and the like, perceived historical legacy of Munich, which is obviously this cartoon version of World War II that everybody constantly imports to justify their current pro-interventionism preferences. Um, that that does loom over everything, and it's always kind of melodramatically invoked by by attendees. Uh, and and let me just give you sort of a, a a tangible example of why I mentioned this sort of cross cutting radicalization that obviously the Ukraine war catalyzed. But given the expanding contours of the Ukraine war, uh, the the contours of that radicalization have also expanded. So for the first time in history. Of the, in the history of the conference, the organizers disinvited any diplomatic delegation from Iran and Russia. Now, it's doubtful, I think, that Iran would have been disinvited but for the furor over its seeming support for Russia in Ukraine, right? I mean, the morality police of Iran could have, you know, locked up all the women it wanted for not wearing a veil or whatever, and I doubt it would have resulted in a formal disinvitation of the delegation to this conference. What what really is the the tipping point, uh, given that it's like the, the nub of the radicalization is obviously the Ukraine war stuff. And then uh, Russia, you know, also formally disinvited, even though it had maintained an invitation to this gathering uh, over the course of lots of different controversies of the past, including Crimea and what have you. Um, And so why is that significant? Well, it amounts to the de facto endorsement of regime change by the conference as a whole in both Iran and Russia. Because it wasn't just that they, they, they disinvited the official delegations. In the place of those official delegations, they invited, quote-unquote, dissidents or opposition factions who openly campaigned and openly lobbied for regime change in Iran and Russia and obviously are holding themselves out as potential replacements for the regime. And they're not subtle about it. Yeah. I mean, one of the craziest aspects of this whole thing was that on the periphery of the conference, which was in, you know, it's in central Munich at this grand hotel. And like you can, the public can be like somewhat on the outskirts. There were these organized demonstrations by these Iranian groups where they were agitating for the installation of the son of the Shah in Iran. Yeah. Meaning the, the Shah was you know, ousted in the uh, Islamic revolution in 1979. His son is now being promoted as the heir yeah. to take over Iran. And they've yeah, the monarchists and, the, and the, them and the MEK cult are, you know, America's candidates for replacing the Ayatollah. Right. And and the, the that individual, the son of the Shah, Pahlavi, I think is how you pronounce the name. He was there yeah. personally. He was in the in basically invited as the representative of Iran at the conference instead of the government diplomats. And his mission was to go around at the conference and lobby the various delegations to support certain measures to effectuate regime change. Now that will, they will, they'll try to hedge somewhat and deny that they want, um, like, I, I think if you, ha- if uh, I, I unfortunately didn't get a chance to ask a question to the, to Pahlavi, uh, directly, I would have liked to, but, um, 
if he were when he was directly addressing this concept of regime change, they'll try to like hedge and tr- sort of cater a bit to the sensibilities of whatever remains of like right-minded European uh, liberalism, at least in a restraint-oriented direction. Where he won't say outright, "Look, yeah, I want you to just bomb Tehran and put me into power." No, it's you know, it's basically just. Um, an all-encompassing uh, policy regimen ought to be implemented to to effectuate regime change by external forces. I mean, that's what they want. Um, and likewise with Russia. I mean, here's basically the 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 ultimate manifestation of the radicalization I'm talking about. I'm my thesis is that there is also an emerging de facto endorsement of regime change in Russia as the ultimate aspiration or the ultimate policy endpoint that is being pursued. Uh, because there's lots of what is being advocated really makes no sense without that as the ultimate ambition, right? Well, first of all, and, which and, dissident yeah. factions from Russia were there? Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, I'll, I'll get into that. Well, <laughs> The dissident faction that they invited um, as representing Russia, this won't surprise you, is led by Garry Kasparov, mm-hmm. right? Who obviously is a ubiquitous media pundit um, and well known in the English speaking world already. But if you recall, Kasparov has actually sought office in Russia before. He attempted to run and then aborted under unclear circumstances uh, for president of Russia in 2008. Um, And his whole whole demand right now is that regime change ought not to be shied away from as what Western governments should actually just overtly say that they're trying to bring about in Russia. He had a foreign affairs essay last month where he was advocating that somehow the Russian Federation itself be dissolved, a transitional technocratic council be installed. He doesn't say this outright, but it seems like the implication is that he would be a member of the Rus- of the prospective technocratic council himself. Um, and then also essentially that any remnants of the prior government, meaning the Putin regime, so to say, be be purged. And uh, he actually uses the term the word liquidated, oh, right? Good. So that's yeah. you know, I mean, he's 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 really into it. And then so he was on a panel um, that was kind of portrayed as a representative of like what the Russian opposition group was that they were they're trying to elevate, along with this guy uh, Mikhail uh, Kordovsky. I don't know if you if that name rings a bell. Yeah, sure. The Why, billionaire yeah. oligarch yeah. gangster. Yep. Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, yeah, and he's there. Yeah, and it's it's amazing because you know they sort of gingerly introduced him. The the, the woman that was uh, presiding over this panel, like, sort of, uh, she she introduced him as though he was this freedom fighter and um, he was trying to bring like liberal reforms to Russia and was stymied by Putin's oppression, which, you know, maybe there is a kernel of truth to in some sense, because the guy was imprisoned under circumstances that I'm sure you could quibble with the, uh, you know, justice of. Oh no, um, he was guilty as yeah. hell. I mean, the thing is, it was a battle between oligarchs and Putin said, you, right, know, you guys exactly. are going to do what I say, or I'm going to replace you with my own oligarchs. And so, yeah, there was no yeah, innocence yeah. there. This is a very bad guy. Well, the, the the point is, you know, e- even if there might have been some overreach or whatever in how he was targeted, I'm, I'm not going to say one way or another with certitude. I, I, I'm not an expert in that arena. Um, that's all washed away now because he's being basically anointed as a representative of like the good kind, the, the one of the few existing kind of Russians who are willing to actually say what needs to be said about the current regime. And his, his mantra was that, you know, everybody needs to understand that there's no good czar, meaning that, you know, nobody should have be under the illusion that, you know, we could just sit back and hope for like the return of a Gorbachev or something, because 
as good as people might have thought Gorbachev was, he was still a czar, and the, the czar uh, system, the system over which the czar, czar presides needs to be overthrown. So he's calling for re- regime change, right? Um, and, you know, so I talked to, to Kasparov myself. Oh, and, you know, also they had, uh, you know, the, the daughter of uh, Boris Nepsov, um, who, you know, the, uh, the guy who was killed in Red Square, uh, I think in 2015, and um, this woman who was also, uh, you know, in exile from Russia, who uh, was given the Nobel Peace Prize in 2022. Um, and so, yeah, these, these are the people who are, who are being, who are uh, elevated as, as the, re- the true representatives of the Russian state, right? Um, and they're overt. I mean, uh, they're overt that regime change must be effectuated. I Let talked me ask to Gar- you this, Michael. Just, wrong, per- directly, yeah. Sorry to interrupt, but you go on for a while and we're running short I on know. time. Um, <laughs> um, there's always been talk for many years about regime change in Russia, and yet the people who do talk about it never mention the nuclear weapons in the same conversation at all. They never mention the possibility of war, that maybe Moscow would rather go to war than to be overthrown to tolerate something like a color-coded revolution uh, being installed in their country. And it seems like they never talk about that part. They just go, well, you know, question mark, question mark, question mark, then profit. And we're not supposed to worry about how you're supposed to actually overthrow the government of Russia without full-scale war breaking out. Do they address that at all where you could hear them? Not really. Or if they did dismiss it, it was kind of, or if they did discuss it, it was kind of blithely dismissed as something that gets hyped for purposes of propaganda. Well, say like if um, Russia actually tried to overthrow the government of the United States, the government of the United States would go to war against them. Right. So, you know. Yeah, I mean, there, <laughs> it seems like they strategically attempt to avoid really stressing those sorts of scenarios because that might disincentivize people from agreeing with the idea that regime change ought to be pursued in Russia. That's right. Um, I mean, look, it, yeah, it makes so, no sense. You're not going to get paid $20,000 to write a study about how we can't fight Russia. They have nukes. Everybody knows that. But yeah. you can get and, paid and a lot of money to write a study about how actually maybe we could. Yeah. And he, but here, here's how this ties together, because it's not like exactly new that Gary Kasparov would be of a mindset where he wants people to agree that there should be regime change in Russia. Right. I mean, I think he's probably gotten a lot more explicit about that as as the years have gone by and especially over the past year in relation to Ukraine. But that's not like the big biggest takeaway necessarily the biggest takeaway is again the institutional endorsement of that demand that's uh, uh, only slightly concealed um and here's the key fact there that um is one of the things i'm gonna put in my article that's forthcoming but i'll give you a, a preview right um I don't know if you recall this, but in September, Zelensky put out a presidential decree where he stated the, quote, impossibility of any negotiations with Russia so long as Putin remains in power, right? Mm -hmm. Which, you know, obviously leads to the inference that they're saying that Ukraine, at least on its own terms, would refuse to negotiate with Russia unless regime change is carried out. Or at least if there's a change in the regime, meaning Putin is ousted from power. And uh, a few weeks after that, Jake Sullivan, as the Washington Post um, reported, went to Kiev and let's say encouraged uh, Zelensky to soften his language or to modify, at least for public consumption, the stridency of that stated policy, right? Because they wanted to, the idea was that Ukraine needs to retain the moral high ground in the eyes of the, quote, international community. And to do that, they have to at least give some sort of public impression that they're willing to entertain negotiations rather than rule them out, which is what he did in the decree. Mm -hmm. Because what the the decree really amounts to is a demand for regime change, right? Because, like, how do you negotiate with the Russian Federation absent Putin if not by removing Putin? And that's what they're saying is the only way that they'll ever engage in negotiations. 
but then, you know, Sullivan has a modified stance, right? And they sort of uh, carry that out to some degree with uh, the other public statements. But the decree is never formally rescinded or anything, right? So it's still seemingly on the books. I mean, to whatever extent you can look at what's on the books in terms of the Ukraine governance structure and say that that's actually sort of some some sort of binding policy, it still appeared to be binding policy. But they kind of would hedge in their PR around whether that actually is a policy. So um, I got confirmation directly, personally, in no ambiguous terms from a senior ranking Ukraine official who's, who came to me actually and, and told me this personally that there's been no change to the policy that was decreed in September, meaning regime change is still on the books as what even now Ukraine endorses. Um, and in a de facto sense, that's what the United States endorses because the United States says that Ukraine gets to set the sort of uh, strategic imperatives itself, and the United States isn't going to impose on Ukraine. And that's the sort of logical jujitsu they they do to sort yeah, of I mean, uh, make a, it seem like it's really yeah. important the diffusion of responsibility. There, we'll give them all these weapons and all this intelligence and all of this stuff, but hey, it's up to them to decide how to use it. Jeez. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or, but it's also a deflection from the primacy of the United States as the key broker or the key decision maker and and, and power player in the dynamic, right? And in fact, listen, we're running Um, short on time. So let me just um, drop this in here and you can build it into what you're already talking about, which is along the same lines too. Um, I read a piece by Kevin Barron in Defense News, The Hawk, and it's a, you know, industry rag. And he said- I read that. It was horrible. Yeah. So he says, look, they all got up on the stage and they said, we will do whatever it takes for as long as it takes. But then it was clear that actually that's not true, that they know that assuming the manpower for the sake of argument on the Ukrainian side, that if they just gave them all the weapons that they needed and all the intel that they needed, et cetera, to really defeat Russia, that could cause a war with Russia. They don't want to do that. They want instead, and I forgot exactly who he quotes here, but this was, he's quoting essentially the consensus. They would rather have the war drag on for 10 more years. They want to see, they don't want any negotiations. They want to see the war end when Russia finally just gives up in exhaustion and withdrawals like Afghanistan 89. And that's the plan is to keep the war going for the long term. And so I wonder, you know, if that was essentially your read on the situation there too. Yeah, yeah, because the the Biden administration line, and they word this very deliberately, is... As long as it takes, meaning the United States will will support Russia, uh, Ukraine rather, for as long as it takes. They don't say we'll give them whatever it takes, right? Which is sort of an important distinction because it's like a temporal commitment that they're. Or sometimes, yeah, they'll say whatever it takes, but not that specific, like whatever weapons it takes. <laughs> you know, as long as long as it takes is what they overwhelmingly say, at least as I've seen it. And I was at a private function on the uh, final day where this Ukrainian um, government official stood up and expressed pretty jarringly uh, direct uh, exasperation with the United States in particular for this as long as it takes refrain because she was complaining that, you know, we don't have as long as it takes. We need to get a massive infusion of armaments ASAP Otherwise, you know, she said, I think she, her exact wording was, otherwise, I, I, don't, I don't know if Ukraine is going to exist in a year from now. Uh, meaning the, the, her, the assessment is, uh, was more dire of, of Ukraine's fortunes at, this, at the moment than you might um, gather from the kind of prevailing media coverage. Right. But um, remember, now the original yeah. plan was that the Russians would destroy the military and government in Kiev. And then we'd be backing an insurgency for 10 years. That was the plan a year ago. So... Even if uh, well, that was one, yeah, yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. That was definitely one of the contingencies. Yeah, yeah. Well, but 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 I think you're right in that, or I think you're uh, the, the this uh, kind of observation is accurate because remember when Lloyd Austin went to Kiev for the first time mm-hmm. after the war started last April and said that the goal of U.S. policy is to see Russia weakened right. so that it can't carry out military action like this again. Um, and then that was sort of supposedly walked back. Um, well, and I don't they walked back the walk any, back. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, 
nothing seems to be walked back on a substantive level in that like everything that's transpired since is consistent with Austin's statement actually being a truthful representation of what the policy is geared toward. And Kamala Harris actually reiterated that in her speech at the conference where she said Russia is weakened. And, and that was a, a positive goal that the U.S. is still attempting to pursue. Um, so, yeah, it seems like, a, you know, sort of just attritioning Russia and, and grinding it down over time is the formula to potentially effectuate this uh, regime change. Um, and sort of things that just within the past week have been done by the Biden administration have added pretty significantly to the existential stakes of the conflict or the perceived existential stakes, right? Because Kamala Harris had this dramatic announcement about, you know, finding Russian leadership guilty of committing crimes against humanity and that there was accountability that was going to be imposed on them, whether they like it or not. And what does that indicate to you? Well, it seems very much like a warning to Putin that his fate is going to be something like that of Milosevic after Milosevic capitulated to the U.S. and NATO after a few months of uh, bombing in the Kosovo War. And what happened with Milosevic? Well, he was prosecuted under a tribunal. Now, it's unclear what form this prospective tribunal will take. There had been talk for quite some time now, actually, about the U.S. entertaining potential mechanisms to kind of construct some sort of judicial body that would prosecute even Putin himself. Um, but however they choose to go about it, it seems inescapable that in order to charge Putin with a crime against humanity and then prosecute him and then imprison him, that you have to carry out regime change? Like, how do you put the guy in prison if not by changing who is in power in the Kremlin, right? That seems, seems like a necessary prerequisite. Um, but because that's such a insanely escalatory step, um, or that's such a maximalist war aim, you're not going to probably get many American officials on the record espousing overt support for effectuating regime change in Russia, right? You'd more expect it to just be something that comes about by what would appear to be like a more organic process or at least not like a predestined right. process. But if you dig a little deep into the weeds, or maybe that was a bad metaphor, if you uh, you know dig a little deeper into the details of some of the necessary implications of the, these policies from people who are a bit more unrestrained in their rhetoric, like a Kasparov, who, by the way, went around to all different countries' delegations, not just at this Munich conference, but also there was a separate conference in Brussels where he met with other, you know, ministers and such in, in Europe. And he's getting a rousing ovation, essentially, where whoever he uh, appears or whoever he's lobbying, he's, he's reporting anyway that he's getting a very positive reception in the agenda that he's promoting. Um, and if he says, as he did to me personally, that he views this latest development, um, or at least the development last weekend of the United States making what it called this formal determination of crimes against humanity being committed by Russian officials, if he views that as a significant advance toward his desired end, meaning regime change in Russia, then, um, you know, I kind of take him at his word on that because he's not somebody who I would think would be... Uh, uh, would be beating around the bush um, or would um, give credit where it's not due in his eyes in terms of a policy that he wants to be implemented toward that, that goal. Um, so, you know, it's a uh, raising of the existential stakes across the board, ideological zeal con coalescing into this just implacable, implacably aggressive just consensus. And uh, basically uh 
declarations that total victory of some kind is the only viable option as far as these people who are running the security state establishment are uh, concerned across these these countries. So uh, I just see more intensification of this drive toward maximalist uh, war aims. And uh, I'm happy to hear out any kind of evidence to the contrary, but um, you know everything that I've uh, picked up on seems to be um, trending in that very uh, easily perceptible direction. Yeah. Well, look, I mean, the lesson of the terror war was they didn't learn anything. The American people, or not enough of them, learned the lesson of Vietnam. And the lesson of all these terror wars... Didn't learn a damn thing from Iraq War II or Libya or Syria or Somalia or Afghanistan or Yemen either. It was just moving right on. And, you know, it was so easy 20 years ago to just go, oh, my God, I can't believe you hate America so much and you hate freedom so much and you love terrorists so much. What is it about you, Michael Tracy, that you just love these terrorists? You just can't say anything against the consensus at all. And it's just as stupid. It's the same thing now that to try to think outside of the point of view of our side's military alliance for one moment is siding with the enemy and hoping he wins and all these things. In other words, it just makes it impermissible to even consider of, you know, what it is that we're doing. But, you know, I, by the way, I actually heard on NPR and I, I'm sorry, I don't know who it was. I should have Googled this up, but I heard on NPR the other day. Sorry if I mentioned this to you before. I think I mentioned it to Charles Freeman, not you. Um, where they did play a clip of somebody from this Munich conference, it was an American diplomat of some kind, saying that, look, the truth is that NATO expansion did play a part in causing this problem and that this is Russia we're talking about here. You can't just, you know, pretend it away. And we have to take hmm. their legitimate security concerns into account. It's just crazy to think that we can't. So I was surprised that that made the cut to air on National Public Radio. In fact... Guess I'm surprised that the guy even said it to them. Um, yeah, I'd be curious to know who that was. I didn't hear that. Let me see if I can um, find that while you're uh, uh, talking about. I mean, you're just you're saying to me. I saw where you tweeted that there's no sleepwalking here. These are all wide awake, grown adults. It's just they've decided to not think about why they're wrong at all, <laughs> basically. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, they've they or they've come to inhabit this like impermeable. I hate to use the word echo chamber because it's a cliche, but it's just true. I mean, they uh, they don't inhabit really a a, uh, a way of being that allows for any real critical perspective. Um, yeah, I guess you know, on occasion you'll get somebody who says something a little bit outside the box with that guy who says, you know, NATO expansion might have been a contributing factor. Um, but especially now, especially after this, this year of radicalization and then uh, in the security establishment and the kind of fervor um, hardening into this this sort of just uh, crusade-like mentality, uh, th there's less tolerance than there had been even in the past for, you know, using an international gathering like this as a venue to air out a multitude of perspectives. Now, I, I'm not going to claim that like two years ago or 10 years ago, the Munich um, you know, Security Conference was some sort of egalitarian, uh, uh, you know, glorious sort of uh, inter exchange of ideas or what have you. Um, but I would say even, it's it seems to me to be just totally obvious that uh, even in just the short amount of time that's passed in the past year, I mean, literally a, a year to the, on the day, um, there's been a narrowing of the collective mind or like a closing of the collective mind. Right. So, um, and that's, that's demonstrated by them choosing to disinvite the delegations of two, uh, two countries that had always been at least welcome to some degree, uh, it, to the conference, um, because they've chosen that chosen to, instead of facilitating dialogue with Iran, with Iran or Russia. The, the idea now is to essentially give this de facto institutional endorsement to imposing regime change on <laughs> Iran and Russia. <clears throat> so if that's, if that's the like, uh, philosophical shift, then you would expect that to sort of bleed out into other areas just in terms of like the general um, spectrum of, of, of thought that they're, they're allowed to 
to, to populate these, these types of gatherings. Yeah. Hey guys, Scott here for Leo Hamill Fine Jewelers out of San Diego at JewelryStoreSD.com. They do business nationwide. They sell jewelry and watches, specializing in engagement rings. You know, in case you're in love with somebody. They also specialize in one-of-a-kind vintage and antique jewelry, fully serviced pre-owned fine watches, such as Rolex, Patek, Philippe, Cartier, and any high-end brand. Leos also services high-end watches faster and cheaper than going to a factory service center. Leos takes all the stress out of shopping for jewelry and engagement rings, and always at the right price. They deal nationwide over the phone at 619-299-1500. That's Leo Hamill Fine Jewelers out of San Diego. Go to JewelryStoreSD.com to check out their fine selection and to find out more. Hey, y'all, you should sign up for my Substack. It's scotthortonshow.substack.com. And if you do that, you'll get the interviews a day before everybody else. But not only that, they'll be free of commercials. How do you like that? Pretty good, huh? scotthortonshow.substack.com. Hey, y'all, libertasbella.com is where you get Scott Horton Show and Libertarian Institute shirts, sweatshirts, mugs, and stickers and things, including the great Top Lobsters designs as well. See, that way it says on your shirt why you're so smart. Libertas Bella, from the same great folks who bring you ammo.com for all your ammunition needs, too. That's libertasbella.com. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible we're already doing it all while saving businesses billions that's wonder made possible learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder these people are completely bananas i mean they've tried to overthrow the ayatollah plenty of times you know since they helped install his predecessor Um, right i think they're really I i think they're more serious about it this time or i think it's kind of because in the past you wouldn't have had like germany on board with that right i mean or you wouldn't have had this far-reaching consensus, or at least I'm not aware of when a, when a consensus was this widespread on, for example, tr- uh, overthrowing Iran. Because we're talking about like a conference that's in Germany in particular, which would have been on the more reticent end of the spectrum on questions like that in the past, you know, maybe along with France or something, where it's like the U- US, maybe UK and, and so forth are leading the charge in the bellicosity. Now, now there's like very little remaining distinction between even the European countries that uh, not long ago would have been, you know, the the, the block of countries that, for example, impose, oppose the invasion of Iraq, right? Um, you know, Germany, France, etc. Those those distinctions have, for all intents and purposes, seemingly uh, disappeared. So, um, I do think that there's a more widespread and seemingly kind of uh, important in terms of whether this could, would actually be carried out, um, consensus on, on the, on the issue. Um, but I don't know, maybe there's an instance in the past that rivals this. I, I'm not aware of it. Well, there's been some pretty hot tension. And, I, and I think that's right. And I think the key Good. reason for that is because of the connection with, 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 with Russia now. And because it's like a, Iran is considered to have, you know, Cross the 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 point of no return due to its co-belligerence uh, or perceived co-belligerence in the Ukraine war. Like that was the threshold crosser. Oh, their co-belligerence in the war. Are they? <laughs> That's funny. well, yeah, um, yeah, and that makes sense though. You know that those kind of get some hard feelings there on the part of uh, people who might have been slightly less worse on Iran before. Um, all right, so talk about China because you know I'm pretty sure you noticed uh, probably if anybody did that back at the end of 2019, the Times had run that story about how NATO doesn't know what it's for, and it's kind of just like in the early uh, to mid 90s, we have this crisis. We we figured out we have to go out of area or out of business because you know it's a government program, and they said that well we don't have any enemies in Europe, obviously. And this is even during the proxy war, you know, still the lower level war going on in the Donbass. But they said um, they did like a big study group and they decided that, well, NATO's enemy is China. Since there's nobody adjacent to NATO that threatens NATO in any way. So we have to go looking for monsters to destroy. And uh, so let's have a build up over there. 
And I gather that you witnessed some discussion about China at this Munich conference. I'm almost <laughs> terrified yeah. to find out what you're about to say here, uh, Michael. But go yeah. ahead. What'd they say? Well, I mean, ju- just to just to set the context a bit, at least in terms of my perception of how this is all developed, right? The most recent prior like confab of this sort that I had gone to was the again the NATO summit uh, from last uh, June, right? And at that NATO summit, you may recall, or you may not, because it really did not get anywhere near enough attention. Um. NATO issued this um, strategic document. It's like it's it's manifesto that every ten years or so it publishes. That's supposed to set out the parameters of its overarching strategy, um, right? And <clears throat> in 2022 was the one of the uh, installation install the latest installation of them issuing this like wide ranging policy strategic decree and for the first time in the history of nato it identified china as essentially an antagonist of the entire alliance um it had never even mentioned china before in one of these decrees all of a sudden in 2022 china is one of the chief so-called adversaries or what what have you that the alliance is seen as arraying itself against and it's expanding it declared that it's expanding meaning nato is expanding its geographic remit into all of a sudden the uh, into east asia uh, which is you know a far ways from the so-called north atlantic um so and in that strategic decree it said that more or less, NATO needs to be prepared to be a nuclear competitor. That's the euphemism that they use, competitor, with, with two peer or near-peer adversaries. And, you know, in the that's the NATSEC jargon. It essentially means that NATO has to be prepared to wage simultaneous nuclear war with both Russia and China. Um, that addition, mean the addition to the strategic decree that with the renewed or the newfound focus on China, that was inserted more or less at the behest of the Biden administration. Um, a couple months later, you look at the nuclear posture review that was put out in October by the Pentagon, and it also affirms that. Of course, the United States reserves the right to use nuclear weapons for any reason at any time, just at the whim of the president. That's reaffirmed, naturally. Uh, but also, it states that the U.S. will employ its nuclear arsenal. I mean, they use such kind of, they use a, like slightly oblique or oddly phrased language to make it, just to kind of like massage the, the, the wording. Um, but it basically repeats what the NATO decree repeat uh, said, which is that the, the U.S. is situating its nuclear posture such that it can wage simultaneous nuclear war against both China and Russia and win. Because you know this whole mantra that people like to repeat of nuclear war must never be uh, fought and cannot be won? Right. Um, even Biden himself said that not too long ago. Well, in the actual <laughs> policy document of the Pentagon, it actually asserts that nuclear war can be won in that the U.S., it says, can achieve its, quote, war fighting aims even in the event of nuclear war. So the official sort of chieftains are not of the view that nuclear war can never be won. They think that the U.S. can win. Um, and they can also, and not just win, but win against two nuclear powers fighting them at the same time. Kind of ominous, right? So <laughs> that's the backdrop. Um, and then it seems to be coming to a head, which was, I guess, maybe also ominously predictable. But uh, what, what happened was the U.S. delegation at this Munich Security Conference, you know, headed by Kamala technically, but but for all intents and purposes, Blinken, Antony Blinken, the Secretary of State, who I I think is one of like the real hardline ideologues that's kind of uh, 
driving a lot of this policy zeal. Um, the, the U.S. goes out of its way, the U.S. delegation goes out of its way to seek a meeting with the China delegation at the Munich Security Conference. Because remember, there had been this uh, diplomatic impasse or diplomatic um, sort of pause, let's say, uh, after the whole sp ridiculous spy balloon incident where Blinken canceled his long-planned trip to China the day before he was scheduled to leave after the uh, because of the Scott, uh, spy balloon being shot down. I don't know. I would have thought that like, if the spy balloon really was that major of an issue, wouldn't that be exactly the time you would want the top diplomat of the country to go right. and handle the problem and tamp down tensions or deal with whatever had to be dealt with? Oh, rather grandstand. Know. Yeah. Um, Make a Gary Powers so, incident well, out of it when it's nothing. Right. So they, they use their first contact after, uh, since that episode to solicit the, the Chinese delegation to have a meeting between Blinken and uh, Wang Yi, the foreign minister of China. And they essentially just used, meaning the U.S., essentially just used this as an opportunity to execute a PR ambush against China. Because what do they do? Well, they, because and they leaked this within seconds, it seemed like, right? So it was, it, it seemed very orchestrated um, and, and uh, coordinated, not like in a conspiratorial way, but this was just the, what they were trying to do, right? They used the, according to Blinken, they used the meeting just as an opportunity to, quote, warn Wang Yi about this idea that there, that uh, China was on the cusp of sending lethal weaponry to Russia for use in Ukraine. Because there, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, there was this brand new intelligence that the U.S. just coincidentally came across, um, you know, just in time for this conference. And uh -huh. uh, not only that, the U.S. delegation, and I got confirmation from about this uh, uh, directly, the U.S. delegation went around to every other country's delegation or every other delegation that it could and, you know, did individualized warnings or issued individualized warnings to the individual countries about China being on the, uh, you know, the cusp of, you know, essentially entering the war to some degree in Ukraine on, in alliance with Russia. Okay. Um, and, you know, so then, then Blinken, once the, you know, it seems like, you know, within nanoseconds after the meet meeting happens, they leak out this allegation to CNN, NBC, et cetera, you know, the usual suspects and start beating that drum and seemingly just admitting outright that they used that um, interaction with Wang Yi, not for any kind of reconciliation, not to diffuse whatever tensions existed, not to engage in like what you would think actual diplomacy would be, but to like throw a, um, a stink bomb into the, in, at them and then use that to grandstand with this new allegation uh, that was not accompanied by any evidence. I mean, it was strange because I, you know, I was told that when they went around to these other countries' delegations and made this claim about China furnishing Russia with arms, they provided no accompanying evidence. I mean, these people just think that like everybody's supposed to believe them on, on face value. I guess because they think that they're emboldened and vindicated by what they regard to be this fantastically successful fire hose disclosure strategy that they use prior to Russia invading last February, where, you know, they supposedly, you know, they, they pioneered this groundbreaking new tactic to just uh, dump lots of intel out into the public domain and then claim that they were, you know, right about everything because, you know, some of that intel like appears to suggest that they were correct about Russia invading. And I'm not denying that they were like in every sense wrong. I, I'm not fully convinced about that whole chronology from that period yet. I still think there's lots of uh, <coughs> pieces yet to be put into that puzzle. But anyway, so that was ambush number one, right? So that was a pretty brazen move on the part of the U.S. delegation to you know, knowingly, willfully antagonize China with a very consequential allegation, right? I mean, they're, they're saying that China is more or less uh, 
making you know a, a decisive break from its stated posture on the Ukraine war, which is like one of neutrality in service of attempting to at least uh, claim or at least claiming to be interested in uh, serving as a mediator. And now they're going to start, you know, supplying armaments for use in the war. I mean, that, that would be like a major development. That would be you know, nuts. I mean, you had said a year ago that that was a likelihood people would, I think, dismiss you as a nutty paranoid um, because, you know, it does give a, uh, a serious omen of some sort of world war scenario being, uh, you know, materializing here. Um, and then, so I'm going to give you a little preview and I'm going to be a little bit circumspect in how I describe this because I haven't published yet, yet cause it's kind of sensitive, <laughs> um, which is uh, why it's, it's taken me a little while, but, uh, here's what I'll say. Okay. I was at a private function and let's say I wasn't necessarily an invited guest in that if they looked at the guest list at for who was invited to this function, my name wouldn't have been on it. And yet I ended up at it. And there were a number of dignitaries, let's say. And it turned out that they, these dignitaries had invited somewhat unexpectedly one of the, one of the prominent members of the Chinese delegation, um, not the foreign minister, but another member. And they did another private ambush on this person in private um, around Ukraine stuff. Now, when I say ambush, I don't mean anything physical or anything. I mean, it's sort of like a sort of deliberately concocted opportunity that they engineered to just lambast the person and um, they basically continue ramping up the antagonism that is being heaped on China, um, which is just bizarre. Like, I mean, if you, if you thought this really was so dangerous or th that this uh, prospect of China becoming a outright, an outright co-belligerent with Russia is so existentially frightening, then, then wouldn't you want to like be a bit more, again, like conciliatory or try to actually do, do some diplomacy here. But no, I mean, there were some, there was this, there were people, uh, there was an attempt at this function basically to, to just Hector and, um, berate, uh, the, a, a representative of China who was already an outlier in even being there in the first place. Cause it's the, they would have been surrounded by officials from countries who, and we're surrounded at this function by officials from countries who are of a very, you know, different uh, mindset on global affairs at the moment. And not only that, but are, you know, pretty hyper zealous. Um, so, you know, they, they, they basically had a Ukrainian representative there to give a emotionally, you know, fraught um, appeal. And, um, and then, you know, uh, put the, the, the Chinese representative on the hot seat. And um, what was communicated to me, and people should subscribe to the Substack if they want to see the final version of this, because I'm, I'm being a little bit opaque on purpose. What was communicated to me is that while China likely would not have been ever disposed to furnish Russia with arms in a, in a vacuum, or if you just had thought uh, been uh, presented with that prospect in the abstract, China would likely not have done that, right? Or would have no real desire to. But given the extraordinary pressure that the United States in particular has placed on China, even which within just the past month, not exclusively within the past month, but it's really reached a new level just within the past month or so, they're they're placing a political they're uh, sort of uh, forcing a political incentive onto China where because there's such growing animosity among the populace toward the United States given what really does seem to be the rapidly accelerating demonization and just outright sort of 
ambush type tactics that are being deployed against China. There's a lot of there's a rapidly growing animosity in the populace of China toward the U.S. So there's this now this uh, dynamic where if China doesn't provide Russia with arms, right? Uh, that could be seen as capitulating to the U.S. or succumbing to its bullying tactics, right? And that could be actually a political problem for the Chinese leadership. So, um, you know, the impression that I got is that it may well be the case that China would end up furnishing arms to Russia. Now, I don't know that with certitude. I don't know that these leaks in particular, including one that just came out, um, uh, a couple hours ago, uh, are, are accurate on this score. Uh, but, uh, I, I do, I do say I came away with the, this, the stark impression that, you know, there's been this perverse sort of self-fulfilling prophecy that the U S has been foisting upon China yep. that uh, may actually now come, come to fruition, which is really, you know, uh, I, 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 I struggle to even articulate just how crazy this whole thing is. I mean, it's it's hard to believe. Yeah. No, and I do believe you. And the thing is, too, I even put it to Charles Freeman like this just a minute ago. That like, okay, look, who am I to comment about this? If I sound alarmist, then you might dismiss it. But you're Charles goddang Freeman. And you're telling me you're worried that we might get in a war with Russia, China, Iran, and North Korea at the same time? And he's like, yep, that's what I'm worried about, that? all right? <laughs> so yeah. he's no kook. He's, uh, right. you know, he he knows of what he speaks. He's He actually went with Nixon, was Nixon's translator when they went and made peace with Mao Zedong 50 years ago. Right. So this is a guy who's been around the block a few times, and he's going, man, let yeah. me tell you, these people aren't listening. They're just, as you're saying, in fact, I, I brought you up to him, that, yeah, Michael Tracy just got back from there, and he said, everybody in the room agrees about everything. You know? He yeah. chimes, I, I call it group think. He said, yeah, no, it's group, but there's no thinking. It's just consensus yeah. with no thinking at all, it sounds like. Yeah, yeah. I got to send you, uh, I, I actually was able to participate in a panel, at least like as an attendee um, at one point, because it's, it's so heavily controlled in terms of media access, right? They actually have this babysitting system, an adult babysitting system that I think was introduced this year for the first time where in order to actually gain access to the main venue, which is this hotel, they, did I mention this to you before? Sorry if I'm repeating myself. No, they, go ahead. They, but they, they basically require you to, first of all, have a specifically declared purpose. So you can't just meander freely throughout the venue. But then you have to have a chaperone. They have like a, this little, they had this like squadron of, 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 uh, 20, you know, uh, 20 year old German guys who would then have to accompany you into the venue and like keep an eye on you the whole time. Really? I mean, it was strange. It was much, it was, uh, I actually had somebody, some journalists there tell me that they had been to one of the, uh, uh communist party of China's national congresses. So those big party of conferences that happen every five years recently there was one um, last fall and the, the media access at that event was far less uh, restricted than the one here you know thankfully you can like you know sneak if you have uh, ways to maneuver around you can figure stuff out and like obviously go to stuff on the periphery and, and uh, encounter people and whatever but you know it was very uh is very restricted, but, uh, yeah, I got to show you, uh, one, uh, I'll send you once it's, it's out. I, uh, went to a panel and Anne Marie Slaughter was the moderator. Uh huh. And, uh, it was a, a bunch of European officials who were on the panel. Uh, but anyway, I asked a question that was, you know, probably maybe the only question of the entire conference not intended to kiss their asses, kiss the asses of the people who are on stage right? or to like burnish my professional credentials or like have a networking opportunity. <laughs> and you could tell they were all just so bewildered. Um, and Anne-Marie Slaughter actually said, well, you know, as uh, maybe unpleasant as that question was and i didn't like i wasn't overly aggressive or rude or anything i was just i asked a substantive question i'll, I'll send it to you you'll see uh -huh. um she says like you know well we we should appreciate that 
we are all here representing democracies and this is what democracy is all about, like disagreement. And oh, on top of that, it is kind of true that at every other panel, there's just complete consensus. So, you know, not maybe not a bad idea to mix it up a little bit now and then. She basically said that, you know, there was, she affirmed that like the whole thing is just total unanimity, almost 100% at the time, maybe with a slight exception here and there. But um, yeah, I love I, it I when they say, because I was just like so allergic to the platitudes and the self aggrandizing kind of yeah. problem that I had to ask a pretty, uh, you know, yeah. antagonistic question. I love it when they say it's the most patronizing thing in the whole world. Oh, yeah. Well, you know what? It's America where there's free speech and you're allowed to say whatever you want, which just goes exactly all translation means is they're not listening to you at all and they don't have to listen to you. And you can stand there and say something for a minute till security drags you out if it comes down to it. But they don't care what you think. That's what that really means. You know, yeah. all of a sudden they're <laughs> celebrating free speech like Voltaire or something. Right. Yeah. Thanks a lot. Right. Um, yeah. No, but I now, mean, so what was the, what was the question that made them so uncomfortable then? Uh, <laughs> it, it was a series of questions, right? Because so the, the, the supposed uh, premise of this particular panel was, I mean, it was so cliched and it was so um, trite it was basically just a rehash of the same panel that they could have had at any point since 2016. It's like, are we in a crisis of democracy? Is populism still on the rise? Is populism fundamentally in conflict with uh, democracy? How do we protect, protect democracy? It was basically just an opportunity it's for so all funny. the got people on the panel to, to kind of genuflect and, um, you know, self aggrandize. I love that. No, by definition, um, Democracy depends on total elitism and all decisions being made in Davos, Switzerland, for all us, you know, mundanes back home. Populism, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, that is, <laughs> people themselves, the masses participating at all or having their interests represented at all. Well, that is a threat to the people having their interests represented at all. Yeah, so one of the other panelists was this guy, David Lammy, who's the shadow foreign uh, minister of... Uh, foreign secretary, shadow foreign secretary in the UK. You know, so he's um, the basic the foreign minister in waiting if Labour would, would were to win a majority at the next election. Mm -hmm. And uh, I happen to know that he was basically the most prominent advocate in the United Kingdom for just straight up overturning the Brexit referendum, meaning hmm. just ignore it and chuck it aside because he didn't like the outcome. That was his position. Um, Bluntly, he expressed that position, not ambiguous at all. Hmm. That was one of his like main sort of line of advocacy was for, for quite some time. And obviously, I also knew about the whole history of Anne-Marie Slaughter and her being uh, integral in hatching the kind of doctrine that underlied the Libya war. Right. Um, and I was also being a staunch advocate in public for the launching of that war. And, you know, being Hillary Clinton's or one of Hillary Clinton's top advisors and agitating through her for the war to be launched. Right. So That's I just right. had, then had to wonder, OK, so isn't all this rhetoric and uh, pontificating about democracy a bit belied by, the, I don't know, the records of the people on the panel when they actually wielded state power? Mm hmm. Because, and I asked Anne-Marie Slaughter, I mean, are you aware of democracy flourishing in Libya after you guys got done with it? Because I am aware of it turning into a slave state. I'm not sure that it became an oasis of democracy. And David Lammy, you know, you're, you know, kissing your own ass about how you're such a principled defender of all that is good about our democratic societies and what have you, and you know, doing all this democracy-related pontificating, and yet you just wanted to straight up abrogate uh, the most uh, well-attended, or the, the, the plebiscite in the United Kingdom, the, the national referendum in the United Kingdom had the highest turnout for any referendum ever. You wanted to just chuck it in the garbage can. So what does that say about your reverence for democracy when the rubber hits the road, right? Um, and yeah, I mean, they were kind of uh, 
<laughs> they there was a whole kind of scrambling thing, and like other people on the panel got involved. It went on for like a half hour. <laughs> they were directing me, like, and I had to like was going back and forth with them, and it was kind of uh, entertaining and I think uh, fruitful in a That's way. Good. And so, you got the video of that? Yeah, I didn't know it was on video. Actually, I recorded it on my phone, just the audio. But it turns out that there was a stream of it, which I didn't know. So I had a guy oh, kind of like edit together some of it and uh, you know splice my audio in so you could hear me better. And uh, yeah, I'll probably have that relatively soon. Awesome. Okay, well, listen, with that, I'll let you go, man. It's getting late on okay. Friday afternoon here, but uh, thank you very much for your time. Hope you have a great weekend, Michael. Appreciate you. All right, you too. Take care. All right, you guys, that's Michael Tracy. He's over at the Substack and, of course, all day camping out on Twitter, too. And um, it's just uh, Michael. I have it right here. Let me make sure I have it right. It's mtracy.substack.com, and that's his handle on Twitter, too, mtracy. The Scott Horton Show, Anti-War Radio, can be heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA, APSradio.com, antiwar.com, scotthorton.org, and libertarianinstitute.org.